Hello, this is Josh. You're listening to the Invitation and the Awakening Collaboration. This is a conversation with Kenda Creasy Dean of Princeton Seminary. I also invite you to listen to the produced episode that precedes this one, the Invitation. It's episode 66 on the Invitation podcast, or visit hope.edu forward slash awakening. Thanks for listening. I just want to say I am incredibly excited to have Kenda Creasy Dean, someone I have been reading and and been impacted by since uh, 2013 and to be able to be with her on the Invitation Podcast. So welcome, Kenda. So great to be here. So um, as I've told you already, your book, Almost Christian, has uh, left me uh, with lots of gifts I've been, I'm not necessarily the, the broadest reader. I just tend to read a few select books over and over and over again. And um, the way that you have, uh, what I learn, I look at your other texts. Can you unpack for our listeners how you have used your study of practicing youth ministry to reflect on the church at large? how youth yeah. ministry speaks to yeah. adult formation? Yeah, that's, that's such a great question. I, and it's, it's the whole reason for me for being such a, a so sold out on youth ministry, right? Mm-hmm. Because anybody who works with young people, I, here's the way somebody, I don't remember who first said this to me, but, you know, every middle high kid is, is every grown up is just a middle high kid with wrinkles, you know. Mm-hmm. And anybody whose church does children's sermons knows that the, those are the parts that all the adults get the most out of, right? <laughs> so, I mean, there's something about being young that we never lose, you know. And that's true biologically, it's true developmentally and neurologically in a lot of other ways, but it's also true spiritually. But we get, um, as we become more complex, of course, we get more layers to it. And there's something about working with young people that is that strips away a lot of those layers. And it's just a very honest kind of ministry. And so, you know, kids will vote with their feet. They're not going to put up with crappy ministry. Mm-hmm. And they don't. I mean, that's, I think, one of the things that they are, they're calling us out mm-hmm. in terms of their um, frank, recognition of cultural Christianity being pretty lukewarm stuff. Mm-hmm. And it's not that they don't go along with it, but they don't, they're, they're not going to sell their souls for it. Mm-hmm. And they're right about that. They're absolutely right about that. Um, that's not what we're called to sell our souls mm-hmm. for. So I, I view youth ministry as a prophetic um, ministry to the church. Mm -hmm. I also view it as a really honest way of understanding um, the deep longings of all human beings that are just super acute, you know, with young people. And um, I, I don't know a single person who has come, who has gone into ministry broadly through the door of youth ministry, you know, who doesn't, think about it that way. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, it's just kind of 
baked into um, the experience of working with young people. You're like, oh yeah, this isn't just about young people. This mm-hmm. is about me. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you. So you have uh, said very clearly that it's not that um, the, the, the youth have some sort of watered down gospel. It's that somehow youth ministry, it, it's not like that youth ministry is transforming or dumbing down. It's basically authentically translating the gospel of the larger church. Well, it can, or it can, um, it depends, I think, Josh. I, if, if, we, if we have our wits about us, mm-hmm. yes. If we, if we have our wits about us and we are really deeply um, attuned to what kids genuinely long for and mm-hmm. are crying out for, I think then that is true. But I also think it's true that youth ministry is pretty darn good at giving parents what they want. Mm-hmm. And that is, you know, parents, I mean, the phrase is they want youth ministry to turn kids into sober virgins, mm-hmm. not holy weirdos. <laughs> and, you know, the church is way more about the holy weirdos, frankly. Mm-hmm. And um, that's, and the way I, I'm being a little bit flip about that, but, you know, parents are very we we love our kids and mm-hmm. we want them to we think loving our kids is to help them succeed mm-hmm. and so andy root talks about how you know the reason why parents take their kids to soccer instead of worship on sunday morning is because they love their children mm-hmm. and they're convinced accurately mm-hmm. that participating in soccer on sunday mornings will do more for their children's success than coming to mm-hmm. church true absolutely true mm-hmm. um and as long as the church buys into that, that we need to somehow help kids succeed so we can compete with soccer. And, and I think youth ministry is as guilty about that as a lot of other parts of the mm-hmm. church. Now, the difference is young people are, will, they are pretty good at saying, you know what, that's not worth my, that's not worth a lifetime. Mm-hmm. That's worth maybe an hour a week, okay. Mm-hmm. But it's not worth my life. It's not worth changing my priorities for. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and if we're honest, uh, most of us think the same yeah. and act the same. Yeah. Anyway, I think it is complex. If we have our wits about us, it can be a prophetic mystery. Yes. <laughs> That's great. What I, what I hear you saying is um, that, that the fail is we're outsourcing this ministry of formation to a youth pastor. And the youth pastor, even at his best, yeah. is not going to be able to offer what a parent who is growing and developing and alive in their faith is going to offer just through osmosis, just through the yeah. air that the kids breathe at home. There's been, I mean, for, for 40 years, we've known that parents are the most important um, formative influence on young people's faith. Mm-hmm. And... Um, that there, in fact, Christian Smith has a new book coming out this spring, I think, um, on pat, handing on faith. Okay. Um, he and Joy Adamschick have written a book on handing on faith from parents and to teenagers. And the conclusion is essentially that um, the only institution which carries any weight anymore, mm-hmm. you know, is family. Yeah. 
And it's not even that we think it carries that much weight. It's just that you're around it a lot more. Mm -hmm. Um, Our deep suspicion of other institutions means that if there's going to be any faith formation, it better happen in families, which Mm -hmm. really changes the way we think about youth ministry and youth pastors' jobs, Mm -hmm. right? Um, I think youth, in a lot of ways, we do better ministry now than we've ever done. We've got more resources, more training, et cetera. Mm -hmm. But whether we are fixing the right problems with it is is not clear. And one of the things that we've got to get better at is giving parents the tools that we try to give kids. I don't know, the example I use in class all the time is, I don't know how many hundreds of times I've done like a faith map with teenagers, you know, you know, the times that you feel close to God or above the line, the time, whatever it is, there are a million ways to do this. Mm-hmm. And what we're doing with those kinds of exercises is trying to help kids articulate mm-hmm. their life with God. Mm-hmm. And then we turn around and say to parents, hey, you know what? You should share your life with God with your teenagers. Mm-hmm. And they're like, well, what? Oh, what? That's why I bring them to you. I don't know how to do that. <laughs> because we never do the faith map exercise with parents. You yeah. know, we, yeah. we, so we need to do youth ministry with parents. That's what yeah. we want to yeah. Well, I, uh, I recall when I was in high school coming from my, my, I, I'm in a studio uh, apartment above my garage and my wife just opened the garage door. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> just a second. I can hear my three-year-old. I can't hear it if that matters. Cool. Uh, yeah. it's just how much editing I want to do later. That's the question. Right. I got it. I got it. Yeah. Um, but as you share that, I'm recalling, you know, my experience as a high school kid going to a very intense, uh, very formative summer camp uh, and, and coming back and wanting to see my parents uh, engage me in all that I learned. Mm. And I remember it coming to a head where I had arguments with my dad. Um, the classic would be we would be driving home from church and we'd always get into a fight about the sermon. Interesting. And I was trying to get him to talk to me spiritually. And finally, one day I said it pretty plainly. I just would like to know something about you and God. And he said, let me get this right. You want to be like my spiritual buddy? Huh. Wow. <laughs> and, wow. And I said, I just want to know like how you pray and worship. And he said to me, Right now, I am called to be your father, and for me to have a relationship with you like that would mean that I would need to have a horizontal relationship with you. It's fascinating. And so maybe, literally, maybe when you're 25. So what would you say? Wow. (laughs) What would you say to a parent in that situation where they're resisting, they're they're seeing their kid go off and they're coming back full of all this zeal and they're just thinking, yeah, yeah, that's just what teenagers do. They just get excited about things and I'm not going to overreact to this. I want this, but I don't. (laughs) Yeah. And I mean, I wonder... What I hear in that story a little bit is a, is a really common place I think parents find themselves. And that is that they genuinely think that they don't, they don't have the, uh, they don't have the language and maybe they don't feel like they have the permission to talk to their kids about faith until they're adults, mm-hmm. right? And somehow 
once you become an adult, so it's a common thing, right? To think of um, young people as kind of in this holding period. And then when you're an adult, then we can get serious about this kind of thing. Um, I, um, first of all, I'm, I love the, the forthrightness of that honest longing on your part and your dad's ability to say to you, instead of just blowing you off, to say to you, well, no, this is how I'm thinking about this. And it could be because he just didn't feel like he had the skills to talk to a teenager about it. Um, but I think what I would hope that we could convince parents is that, and we have, and we have lots of, of data now that we didn't have 20 years ago that can back this up, but that, you know, no, actually talking to your kids about faith is, is one of the most important gifts you will ever give them. And one of the things that we're pretty good at, in fact, I, I had kind of a crisis about this. There was some research that Fuller did, geez, 10 years ago, maybe now, longer, um, that said that the most important faith story young people ever hear is, this, is the story of their parents' faith story. So I'm teaching at a seminary at that point. My kids are in high school or junior high or middle high. And I, I'm like, as, as Kara Powell is speaking, I'm having this mental crisis going, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, I've exposed my kids to everybody else's faith, but have I ever told them about mine? Mm-hmm. And so, so of course I went home, my daughter, um, I don't know how old she was, 12 or 13. Um, I'm like, I sit down, I said, Shannon, I've got it. I need to tell you about my faith story. And, and she's like, mom, are you dying? What's going on? <laughs> have overreacted on that one just a little but it was such an it was such a an obvious miss right it's like I can't believe I've been hit I've been hitting all the wrong balls back you know the one that really mattered have I ever told them I don't know have I ever told them my faith story little bit pieces have probably leaked but no I don't know that I have so you know I mean this is this is we all we all are kind of in that boat yeah yeah (laughs) Thank you. That's great to hear your vulnerability. Would you, would you say that you learned to find ways to open up those conversations with her later? Uh, yeah, I think so. I, my son, not so much. He at that point was older and um, yeah. had, you know, made up his own mind that uh, about his own path. But um, with with my daughter, yeah, I think, mm-hmm. uh, you know, she happened to be the one at home when this happened, so she mm-hmm. got at both barrels. But yeah, uh, and. Uh, and her, it was interesting because um, you would think what we know is that kids' um, spiritual lives mirror their parents' spiritual lives to an astonishing degree. And that's probably true in our family too. But, but that doesn't mean their spiritualities are going to follow the same path that ours does, right? So, so in my daughter, in my case, we have very, very, we have, she, she's a faithful Christian in, in, in all the ways that you know, I'm proud of, but she is, um, her way of expressing that is, boy, really different from mine, really different from mine. So I think there is, there is no fear. Here's what I hear a lot of parents say. Well, I don't want to force faith on my kid. I want them to choose when they get old enough to choose. Mm -hmm. But the truth is sharing your faith journey doesn't force anything on them. They are quite capable of resisting. And you know, they resist a lot of other things we say yeah. to them. So I don't yeah. know why we think that faith is any different. 
But what they have, in re- it matters that they have something to resist. Mm-hmm. It matters that they have something that they can rebel against, maybe. Mm-hmm. It matters that they have something that they can, you know, kind of line themselves up beside and figure out, here's who I am and here's who I'm not. That's really important in the identity formation process. Mm-hmm. And we know that and we do that in almost every sphere except spirituality. Mm-hmm. And then we're like, nope, hands off. We're going to let them choose. And I think that's abdication. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Thank you. So the um, context for my service in the awakening was um, the director of the program just asked me to help get this started. I thought, well, I'll write some curriculum, develop some sense of how to train leaders, the college students that help facilitate the experience for high school students. And then I'll go back to my work with spiritual direction, adults, especially in the prison. But um, what I experienced and what keeps me coming back is that these teenagers are the most open and willing spiritual beings that I experience outside of the prison. Wow. So they will try anything if it has to do with loving God more deeply. So uh, this is where I've, especially in my development of what we do with the awakening, have looked at what is the extent to which a teenager can participate and appropriate contemplative spirituality. Oh, wow. Yeah. So within the the background of your, your book and that favorite chapter of mine, especially, you know, my first time reading through that with a campus ministry staff, talking mm-hmm. through for college students the question of, of therapeutic moralistic deism. In, in that context, in that ministry, the response was to buckle down on doctrine. Right. Oh, my gosh. So true. Right. So true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So um, what you introduce in the youth ministry context, going back to this idea of what youth you know, ministry could offer to adults or what a children's sermon can offer adults. Mm-hmm. This is, this is stuff that I, most adults would have trouble with. And you explain that, that there's a movement towards mystical, excuse me, a movement towards mythical consciousness as opposed to a logical consciousness that's necessary for transformation. So for those parents or youth pastors, or even some of the high school students, could you unpack some of that more? Yeah. Well, I do think that there is um, a particular openness to, um, and it may be generational and it may just be human, that um, truth lives in stories for young people. It doesn't live in propositions. It doesn't live in things, you know, things that we believe. In fact, one of the problems with the National Study of Youth and Religion, which uh, is that what that book is based on that you're talking about, is that we ask kids what they believe. That was dumb. We should have asked them to tell us a story that was true for them. Uh-huh. And um, what and 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 researchers know are better at this now than they were, you know, ten years, fifteen years ago when we were doing this. So um, because even kids, and so what happened was we got a kind of a skewed sense of of kids' spirituality on that, in that we got a lot of information about the. Um, the propositions that they thought, you know, were true or important or not important. But, but truth goes deeper than that. 
And so the stories that young people tell, this is the, um, the, the imaginative kind of role that faith plays for us. And, you know, we are part in the Christian faith. We are part of a story, mm-hmm. you know, we're not really part, part of a belief system. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, we are, but the, that belief system springs out of a story that's alive, that, that's living. And, and it, we even, and I, I chalk this up to enlightenment translations of stuff, but even the word, what, what do you believe? That wasn't, didn't have the same force in the ancient world that it does for us. We think, what do you believe? And we think from the neck up, mm-hmm. what do we think, right? Mm-hmm. But what they, what, what they were trying to get at is, what do you trust? Mm-hmm. Who do you trust? Mm-hmm. Who do you put your faith in, right? And so I try to change my language even from belief to trust sometimes just to remind myself, this is a relationship that we're talking about and it comes relationships happen when we, our stories connect when the journey that i'm on and the journey that you're on we come together in some way and and in sharing that journey we become you know a we the i becomes a we and so um yeah i i think that that imaginative consciousness is something that frankly we can we can be reminded of it and learn about it from young people because not only are they, you know, we, we, we know that young people respond to stories, so do all the rest of us. Mm-hmm. And culturally, that's becoming even more acceptable now. Mm-hmm. And um, whether it's through the way young people connect socially through video games or whatever, these are stories they are trying to be part of, even to try them on just for a minute. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do think that there is a lot that young people can tell us as a church that's like, Okay, stop with the propositional truth mm-hmm. and let's get with the story, yeah. you know, and just let that story kind of unfold with us as a community. And part of that's the way we tell it. Part of that's the pieces that are part of it. Mm-hmm. Part of it's the, the way we enact it. Mm-hmm. You know, all those things go together. Yeah. And so for those listening, you're saying that the mythical consciousness is that imaginative, right? that, uh, that highly sensual experiential the existential way of living into a story and god's reality instead of just a list of ideas yeah right postulate postulations you know the some of the the, um research that we're that's coming out now you know we're we're all um affected by the, the Pew research findings of the nuns, you know, mm-hmm. and nuns defined as people who check no religion in particular, you know, mm-hmm. but that's, but that is measured on checking a box. Mm-hmm. Now, subsequent research is finding that a whole lot of those nuns, first of all, they're pretty active in spiritual mm-hmm. things, you know, and in fact, are, are even sometimes developing their own enclaves of spiritual formation. Mm-hmm. Um, but if we ask them to check a box, they will dutifully do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So even that, that uh, you're saying that the apparatus of the research is already conditioning your finding. Yeah, always, always. Skewing right. it. And, and, and it's, you're trying to assess mythical consciousness with logical consciousness it, tools. Yeah, that's a really good way to say that. And look, all, all research is hampered by its, its, its formats. We just have to be honest about that yeah. and, you know, look for the 
look for the messy parts because that's where all the interesting stuff is. Yeah. So I just, last question would be, you know, from your research experience, maybe it's your research or even just what you've seen in other youth ministries. Um, is a teenager in terms of psychological development capable of contemplative practice? Oh, yeah, that question. Yes. And what's more, I think we're in a, in a period in our culture where they're really starving for it mm -hmm. and hungry for it, right? More and more kids are t turning off social media because it just, you know, <laughs> eats their brain, their brains alive a little bit, you know, and they just find that they, they just need space. They just need, you know, uh, they just need to kind of clear this, clear the ground a little bit. Mm -hmm. And um, contemplative practice is a very scary thing for a lot of people. And so I don't go around calling it that most of the time, you know, when I'm with young people. What would you call it instead? Well, um, naps is what one youth minister I know calls it. She has retreats that are oversubscribed because she takes kids away and they take naps. <laughs> and uh, they, uh, she always has nap time as a prominent part of these retreats. And these are, she's in a, she's in a part of um, New Jersey that is over, over scheduled kids, you know. Wow. So um, Sabbath is, uh, gosh, my students can't get enough of talking about Sabbath. Yeah just a break, a release from being defined by our productivity, right? Kids feel that keenly. Um, and, the, you know, of course, kids that don't have the same economic advantages of, you know, college or some of the other things, but they've got different kinds of pressures that they need breaks from too. Um, and so, uh, you know, pilgrimages, I, I call this, by the way, the slow youth ministry movement, you know, kind of like the slow food movement. Yeah. Only I think we really are in a moment where as we begin to realize that, that we're youth ministry and youth group are not synonymous, mm -hmm. it gives us a lot more freedom to try to say, you know, hey, we're going to do this, this, there's this ministry. I think it's fascinating. They're in South Carolina, but they're one of their major ministries is a Western trek. They they have kids from all of, not just from their church or their campus, they have kids from all over the country um, doing this Western pilgrimage through all the canyons. It's massive. Um, and, um, you know, it's just tapping into that need to kind of clear some space, I think. Yeah. And that has deep, as you know, right? You of all people know how deeply rooted that is in faith tradition. You know, yeah. we're not the first culture to get caught up in things. That's right. Mm -hmm. Well, Kenda Chrissy Dean, I really appreciate your time, your generous uh, willingness to talk with me through these things. It's great fun. So thanks for thanks for having the conversation. So again, to find out more information about The Awakening, a week-long experience for teenagers in the worship arts, you can go to hope.edu forward slash awakening. And to learn more about what I do with The Invitation, that can be found at theinvitationcenter.org. You can find lots of further resources about prayer and justice Thanks for listening. Amen.